morning. It's wonderful to see you all on site and those who have joined us online as well. We are continuing our series called Resilient as we've been looking the last few weeks at the story of Joseph found in the last chapters of the book of Genesis. If you've been with us, you know that Joseph has proven himself over the past few weeks to be a great example of a person who is resilient in the face of adversity, temptation. And last week we talked about being resilient when we feel discouraged. And we can understand why Joseph is experiencing these things. Because after all, if you've been following the story, you know that he was in a family where he was hated by his brothers to the point where they wanted to actually kill him. But they backed away from that and decided, no, we'll just sell him into slavery in Egypt at the age of 17. And then when he gets to Egypt and he serves as a slave, he's framed for a crime he didn't commit and he finds himself in prison. And as we learned last week, he spent many, many years in that prison. In fact, 13 years in total where he was stuck and chose to serve. But through it all, he's been a stellar example of a man who remained faithful to his God, who had always been faithful to him. If you've been watching or been with us for the past few weeks, you know that that statement, that theme has been reoccurring through every chapter of the story. Well, I have some good news for you today, folks. And if Joe was here, I would give him a heads up as well, because today is going to feel like a payoff for Joe. Why? Because today is the day he catches his big break. Today, Joe gets released from jail. <laughs> I, I felt like we should have balloons or something. Maybe if you're online, you can type, congratulations, Joe, <laughs> into the chat. And congratulate Joe on his big day that finally comes. But not only is he freed from prison, in the process of doing so, he actually finds himself promoted to a level of prominence and great success in his life and his Part of a excuse me, part of this story as well. And today we're going to talk about that aspect of resiliency. One that we may not think about too often. Because even in the moments of success, we still need to remain resilient. And Joseph is going to be a demonstration of that for us today. He's going to show us that even when you get everything you could possibly ever want, we need to be careful that we don't lose the one thing that we need. Now, it all begins in chapter 41, and if you want to open your Bibles up, chapter 41, we'll be following along. I'll just sort of narrate the first half of the story, and then we'll have a closer look at the second half as we go. But this all begins for Joseph by a king, by Pharaoh of Egypt, who is troubled by some dreams he has one night. Dreams that startle him awake. Dreams that when he wakes up, he's thankful it was only a dream. And as Pharaoh sits on the edge of his bed with his, his heart pounding and his mind racing and his spirit burdened, he's convinced that these were just dreams, but, but were they? Because dreams are also messages from the gods. And in this case, he believes that that is so, but not a very good message. So he calls together all of his wise men, all, the, all of the people who are trained in the kingdom in the art of dream interpretation, but nobody can give him a satisfactory decipherment of what these dreams mean. And as the tension builds in the king's court, uh, the cupbearer who we met last week who was in jail with Joe for a while, the cupbearer suddenly has his conscience awakened as he thinks to himself, there was a time in my life when I had a dream and, and I told it to this guy named Joe who was in jail with me and, you know, and he knew what it meant and it turned out exactly as he, as he said and then, oh yeah, I... I promised I'd put a good word in for him, didn't I? Well, 
two full years has passed. Well, better late than never. So he tells the king about Joseph. And immediately the king calls for Joseph to be, to be you know, changed into some clean clothes and get a nice clean shave. And then he's brought before Pharaoh, who speaks to him in sort of a half-question, half-statement. As Pharaoh says to him, I hear that you can interpret dreams. To which Joseph humbly responds, actually, I can't. I hope he didn't pause for too long after he said that part. Actually, I can't. But my God will give you the answers you desire, king. And so then Pharaoh proceeds to tell Joseph these dreams that have been so troubling to his entire being. And in the first dream, he dreams that he's down at the Nile River and he sees seven cattle who are cooling themselves from the sun come up out of the river and they they start grazing along the edge. And he says, these cows that came up, these seven cows, they were fat and sleek. I, I guess that's what a... But a handsome cow is described as. They're, they're fat. I've never described a handsome cow. But they're fat and sleek as they're grazing along the shore. But then seven scrawny, ugly, the ugliest cows I've ever seen, he says, came up behind them and they ate the seven fat, sleek cows. I woke up because that's odd, but it's also very concerning. But I went back to sleep and I had a second dream. This time I saw a single stalk of grain that, that had seven heads that were full and healthy. But then on the same stalk, another seven withered heads came up. Heads that had been withered and, and dried out by the, by the winds that blow through. And these unhealthy heads ate and consumed the seven healthy ones. I told this to all my wise men, all those who are trained to answer such questions, but nobody can tell me what this means. But without hesitation, Joseph provides for Pharaoh the long-sought-off revelation. He says, King, these two dreams are one and the same. God is revealing to you, for sure, a message. He's telling you what he's going to do. The seven healthy cows, the seven healthy heads of grain, those are seven years of incredible abundance that's about to come to your kingdom. But those seven ugly cows, the, the seven dried, scorched heads of grain are, are seven years of famine. So king, here's what the Lord is telling you. And he's telling you twice because he has made his mind up that this is going to happen and it's going to happen soon. He says, you are about to have seven years of incredible abundance throughout the land, but that will be followed by seven years of famine so great that nobody will remember the abundance. Joseph goes then one step further. He goes and provides for Pharaoh a plan that Pharaoh did not request. He says, king, here's what you need to do. You need to find a wise man. You need to find one man that you can trust, a discerning man who you can put in charge of the whole nation, the whole situation, and they should station commissioners throughout the nation and impose a 20% tax during the good years so that we can collect enough food to be held in reserve to sustain us through the famine. If you do this, king, you'll be able to feed your people during the time of famine, but you'll also be able to generate revenue from the other nations who are going to need grain, and you will increase your kingdom. You will sustain your people. Now, Pharaoh didn't like the interpretation much, but he loves the plan. The plan sounds amazing to him. And so he asks all who are gathered in his court, is there anyone better suited than Joseph for this job? And then he lists his qualifications, thinking 
Joseph, here's the guy who can interpret dreams. Here's a guy who has incredible wisdom. He's an eloquent speaker. He has insightful planning skills. And most importantly, the king says, the spirit of God dwells in him. And so in that moment, Pharaoh announces that Joseph is to be placed in charge of all the palace, the people, and the plan. And he is second in the entire nation of Egypt. Second only to the king himself. What an amazing journey Joe's been on. He goes from a pit to a prison to the palace. This is a big promotion for him. In this moment, basically everything his heart could ever desire is now at his fingertips. It's all available to him. And as I was thinking about this, it, it made my mind go to this a movie, probably a movie you've all seen as well. And the final words of this particular movie. Uh, have you seen, probably seen the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Anybody seen, yeah, seen that one? You know, the old version, they remade it. The old one's better, like most things that they remake, right? But the final words of that movie, remember what they are? It comes at a time after Charlie has proven himself worthy. And then this eccentric proprietor and inventor, Willy Wonka, turns to him points him air of the entire factory, and then says these words to him. Don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted, Charlie. He lived happily ever after. Joe was on the cusp of living the dream, of achieving the goal that so many people in this world are chasing after, a life of success. Now, success is defined different ways by different people. For, for some, you may consider success to be financial security. Others may consider it just getting to the top of that corporate ladder that we're trying to continue to promote our way up. For some people, success means they just want to pass a course at school. For others, it might mean I just want to get married and have a family. But however a person defines success in their lives, it, it comes along often with this belief that if I can just attain that, then I'll be happy, then I'll be secure, then I'll be content. And while there's nothing wrong with these things, they're not evil. You know, getting married is not evil. Being promoted at work or, or having wealth is, is not evil. There's nothing inherently wrong with these things. But, but here's why this matters. You see, from the very beginning of the story for Joseph, he has existed in a state of need. He's been in a state of dependence upon God. And it's true that when people are going through tough times, sometimes they question and doubt their faith and, and, and they wrestle with God. That happens. But in my experience personally and in those that I've, I've had the chance to pastor, what I find more often than not is when people of faith come into hard times, they actually push deeper into that faith. It, it actually, there's kind of this, this draw that pulls them towards God when, when they have a pre-existing faith. I find that is actually more common. You see, when we find out that our strength is not enough, when we reach the end of our proverbial rope, we're very, very open to somebody with greater power. We're very open to somebody who has a longer rope than us when we find ourselves in those moments. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, That is why for the sake of Christ I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, a person's greatest power, a person of faith's greatest power exists when they have low self-reliance and higher trust in God. Does that make sense? Here's the problem. Joe's life, the tides are about to change. 
and people in situations like that often begin to experience an opportunity for a rise in self-reliance, which sets them up for a lowering sense of need for God. You see, it's one thing to be resilient in your faith when you're going through trials. Because sometimes we figure, well, I have no other option. It's a whole nother thing to even see the need for resiliency when we're experiencing success. So as we reconsider the statement that's up on the screen, and maybe put a bit of a spiritual spin on it, a bit of a spiritual perspective on it, perhaps for today, for what we're going to talk about today, we could rewrite this and say, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he wanted. He was at risk of walking away from the very thing he needed. That's why this question matters. That's why resiliency is important, even in the midst of success. And so Joseph continues to be an example of resilient faith, even at the pinnacle of success. But as we walk through the rest of the story today in chapter 41, we'll see that he was also able to steer clear of some of the hazards that success can bring and potentially derail a person's relationship with God. And the first hazard of promotion success is this, is that you need to know who to thank. And so as we open to Genesis chapter 41 and begin reading in chapter 41 now as well, After Pharaoh has announced Joseph is to be in charge of all of this, we see this in verse 41. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way because here comes Joseph. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name, Zaphonath-Paneah. And he gave to him Asnath, the daughter of the priest Potiphar, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Right now, in, as we enter into February, this is typically the middle of awards show season. You know, if it wasn't for COVID, we'd, we'd see all sorts of festivals and celebrations taking place to, to honor people of like TV and music and, and movies as they kind of recognize their own, the, the best of the best of the performers. And quite often when they step forward in these ceremonies, after years and years of hard work, they, they finally hear their name and then people clap for them as they walk up onto the platform and they accept their, their Emmy or their Grammy. And then what comes next? They have to thank people at that moment. Well, I'm sure if there's a ceremony, in Joseph's case, Potter, or Pharaoh feels that he should be top of the list. After all, he has just taken a foreign prisoner and he has promoted him and elevated him to give him everything he could ever want. He took his signet ring off and and gave it to Joseph. He dressed him in royal robes. He put a gold chain around his neck, which didn't just make Joseph look good. It also was symbolic of the wealth that was available to him and the authority that he had because of it. He gave him a chariot, which was in that day, it was like a limousine. And he had secret service that would go out ahead of him to clear the road and make sure that he could travel uh, unburied and without any safety concerns. Which was a demonstration of his status. 
He gave him a new wife. And this wife brought him into the elite families of the entire nation. He was the daughter of the priest of the sun god, Ray. And he gives him a name that is fitting of that position as well. The name that he is given means God speaks through him. To signify the power and influence that Joseph now had. Now here's the thing. The king had like just literally just appeared in Joseph's life. But God had been creating and shaping Joseph for his entire life up to this point. And been doing so through every single situation. Now, Isaiah 64 says, you, Lord, are our father. You are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. Have you ever seen a potter work, create a, a vase or a bowl? They start with, like, literally just, just dumping a lump of clay onto this table, and they, they start to spin the table. And, and as it happens, they take their hands and, and they gently just kind of press and pull and smooth that lump of clay until it starts to take a shape. But then there's other parts where they'll grab a tool called a potter's rib. It, it's sometimes a piece of bone or, or a piece of plastic that they'll use and, and they'll, they'll dig it in. And they'll remove excess of pieces. They'll, they'll shape and put grooves and notches in, into the shape and the character that's being formed in this vessel. The whole time they have an, a vision in their mind of what the final product will look like. And as they shape it gently sometimes and, and firmly other times, it gen, gradually takes shape. For 30 years, especially the last 13 years, God has been shaping Joseph. He has been Shaping Joseph's character, his faith, his experiences, his credibility, removing some of the rough spots. It wasn't always easy. Sometimes I'm sure it was very painful, but God was preparing him for such a time as this. Can you think of your own story? There are times in your life when you look back and you're like, it was painful, but I know God was, he was chiseling pieces off of me. Bad habits stubbornness, when I was committed to my own will instead of God's? Can you look back and see unique experiences or, or moments of teaching? Or maybe, maybe God was preparing you for something. There's a guy named John Sung who many years ago, back around 1920, was born in China. And, and he accepted Jesus Christ as a very young boy, was faithful to God, and John was also very, very intelligent to the point where he was able to travel to the United States and, and in five years get a, a bachelor, a master's, and even start working on his doctorate. But during the studies in the U.S. And, and eventually shipping himself back to China to go to seminary, he started to develop a sense of skepticism. All of his education sometimes led him to a place of doubt. And, and he actually started trying different faith traditions and, and started practicing Buddhism and walked away from his first love. His first love being God that he discovered as a young child. And then in his own testimony, he talks about how he was at this meeting one day, and a 15-year-old boy walked up, who happened to be an amazing, even at 15, an amazing evangelist. And he spoke to the crowd, and John says he could feel the reawakening of his soul. As he confesses waywardness and he recommitted his life to Jesus. And from that day on, he went out and he started preaching with incredible zeal and passion. 
So much so that the people in his seminary, his Christian seminary, thought this guy has lost it. And they actually had him committed to an insane asylum for preaching with fervency. He spent six months in this asylum, unjustly imprisoned with only one thing, his Bible. And as he looks back upon his story, he refers to it as a time of spiritual incubation as he sat in this asylum for those who have mental impairments. And then he was released. And he goes, it was all about preparation for ministry, he says. All of the experiences, all of the training, the revival I went to, the study time I had, it allowed me to emerge with a fire in my belly. Better prepared to go forth. And he started to lead China through a decade of spiritual revival to the point where he was named the John Wesley of China and established the foundation of the church there that still exists and is growing to this day. How has God been shaping you? What events has he used in your life? What what challenges, what experiences have you had that just maybe are preparing you for a moment to come? You know, there are very few who will have these preparations that lead them to to bring about revival of a nation. But everybody can bring revival to their lives and, and to their homes. There's only a handful who will stand and preach the good news to multitudes, but everybody can share the love of Christ in word and deed with those around them in their homes and their schools, their workplaces and communities. Very few people will have a platform where they can work to solve the issue of hunger and starvation in the world, but everyone can see somebody, have eyes to see the homeless on the street around us during the cold times and give them food or give them a blanket. When we faithfully use what God brings before us, when we faithfully use the God-given opportunities and preparations to fulfill his vision, regardless of how large or how small, that is success. And should you find yourself in a moment of promotion or in a moment of success in the days to come, remember who to thank. Remember to thank God for those moments. So we we not only need to remember who to thank for the past formation that takes place in our lives. But as we'll see as we continue the story, Joseph, we also need to know who to trust in the present. As we keep reading in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph called all the food, collected all the food, produced in those seven years of abundance of Egypt and stored them in the cities. And each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up such huge quantities of grain. It was like the sands of the sea. It was so much that he even had to stop keeping records because it was absolutely beyond measure. After seven years, seven years of abundance, Joseph has been riding around and experiencing the best of the best. His chariot, the announcement of his arrival, all of the hard work he's been putting in, and it's paying off. It's, it's so amazing how much he's bringing into the storehouse. It's beyond the ability to even count. Everything is going so well for him. And it looks like Joseph's going to be the savior of Egypt. Put yourself in his spot for a second. Seven years of all of this incredible status and wealth and privilege and success surrounding you, and you are going to save the entire nation 
you think in that moment you'd start to feel a bit of that human tendency towards this thing called pride? You can see how that might start to well up inside somebody? So we use this word pride in, in our lives sometimes in, in a positive sense, where if we, if we feel good about an achievement, you know, if I, if I do well at a, an activity, a game, a task, if, I, if I'm performing well at work, we, we can feel a sense of pride in a job well done. And that has a place, but that's not what we're talking about here. You see, when the Bible talks about pride, it, it has a bit of a negative sense to it. Where it defines pride as this shift. This shift from ultimate confidence in God to confidence in the self. And quite often when the Bible talks about this shift of confidence in God to confidence in the self, it does so by referring to a person either as a fool or as a wise man. Especially in the book of Proverbs, where in the book of Proverbs you'll find many, many sayings of wisdom against such an attitude as pride. For, for example, Proverbs 28, 26 says, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. So there are many people in this world who are wise and intelligent, absolutely brilliant Throughout time, throughout history, and in our world today, there are those who are just gifted by God with this incredible ability to to know how to create and invent and invest and and advance society. We we see some of these, some of the best of the best, the most intelligent people, for example, end up working at places like NASA, right? That's it's considered, you know, it's not like I'm a rocket scientist. Like that's the pinnacle of intelligence, kind of thing. That's, that's the, the peak of human wisdom and intelligence. But even that has its limitations. Did you know that back in like the 60s when the space race was going on, you know, when, when America and Russia were in this race to who could land on the moon first? There's all sorts of problems that go with that, that they have to get the best and the brightest minds to, to work on. And one of them, relatively simple but critical, was how do we get a pen to work in a zero-gravity environment? Because if you think about it, Pen requires gravity, like the ink needs gravity to pull it down to the end so that it will work, right? Makes sense. But in a zero-gravity environment, how do you get a pen to work? NASA spent millions, hundreds of man-hours trying to solve this problem, and the Russians beat them to it. They didn't beat them to the moon, but the Russians beat them to the solution to this problem. They actually did so at a fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time. You know how they did it? The Russians just used pencils. <laughs> That's what they did. <laughs> the Russians chose to use pencils. You see, there's limits to our intelligence at times. People can spend countless hours just trying to trust in themselves, to determine the right way to live for themselves. How do I have healthy relationships? What does it mean to live morally? How can I avoid harmful attitudes and activities that will do injury to myself and those around me? How can I find peace in God? But the wisdom to all these things has been given to us. It's been given to us through God's word. It's been given to us through the examples and the experiences we've had in the past. You know, the fool is the one who trusts in himself. The, the fool is the one who does not seek and therefore does not find because the wisdom hasn't given to us. You know, such situations can be humbling for, for people at NASA, but also for those who are trying to find their own way in this world. It can be very humbling. 
But here's the good news. Humility is actually the antidote to pride. See, humility is defined as, as to be brought low. And, and we, we kind of are brought low because we become aware of a gap be, between us and somebody else. And sometimes this shows up in society where maybe if you have a celebrity or a sports hero or, or maybe there's a leader that you really, really respect and emulate. And you know if you were to stand in front of that person, you just feel this gap that would exist. And so in that moment, it, people say it can be humbling. Because and what they're talking about in that particular situation is when there's external constructs that impose humility upon us. Like we've established these, these social levels where somebody above us, we're aware of the gap, and so there's a social construct that imposes humility upon us. But when the Bible talks about humility, it's different than that. It still includes an awareness of a gap. Where, where God is above in wisdom and intelligence and greatness and power. And we're not. We're so far down. My hands can't go down low enough. But there's a gap. And so we're aware of this. But, but instead of an external force imposing humility upon us, that, that would be more about judgment and wrath. Instead of an external force imposing it, the Bible talks about how one needs to have an internal choice. An internal choice to come low. An internal choice to bring themselves under. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of the most popular verses in the Bible is, is talking about when it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, your own pride, but in all of your ways submit to him. In all of your ways practice humility and come under him. And then he will make your paths straight. See, Joseph is aware of God's presence in his life. And we don't get any sense in this story at all that, that he feels this sense of pride, that he's living in this sense of pride. But we can tell from the story, is there an opportunity for that? Absolutely. Absolutely. A, a, another man of less faith than him would feel that welling up of pride as he would think, I am the Savior of Egypt. But what we're aware of in Joseph's story, is we're going to see, is a sense of humility. A humble awareness of God's presence in his life. So when we consider promotion or when we consider success, when Joseph considers that he has gone from the pit to the palace, when he processes everything that's happened along the ways, I wouldn't be surprised if he sits back and he goes, doesn't it all belong to God? Doesn't God deserve all glory in that anyways? Because think of it, it was, it was God who gave Pharaoh the dream. It was God who gave Joseph the plan. It was God who warned them all in the first place. It was God, not Joseph, who made the crops abundant and provided for what was going to be needed in the future. God deserves all the glory. And therefore, if God deserves all the glory, and if, if there's this gap between what we can achieve and what he can achieve, then maybe that means we should trust in him as well if we're going to be resilient. And so if Joseph steers clear of these first two potential hazards of success, he, he knows to give thanks to God for the past. He, he knows to place his trust in God for the present. But now he must decide who he will honor for the future. And we see this as we finish chapter 41. We're starting in verse 50. It says, Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. And Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh. And he said, it is because God has made me forget all the troubles of my father's household. 
The second son he named Ephraim, and he said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. Then there was famine in all other lands as well, but the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, and Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Don't talk to me, go talk to Joseph. Do what he tells you to do. And when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold the grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was so severe throughout all of Egypt. And all of the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe elsewhere, too. Joseph been put through the ringer for these last number of weeks and chapters we've been walking through. He's been put through the ringer this entire story, and he's remained faithful to God. Joseph has every reason to be angry, to be bitter, to be resentful as he looks back upon what he has had to endure, especially the last 13 years where he's gone from one pit to another. But now he's in the heart of God's blessing. But now he's in the heart of God's plan for his life, and he must decide what will define all the days of his life going forward. There is a a man named Roland Hendricks who felt called by God to go be a missionary in Africa. And he was married, so he had to take his wife with him to be a partner in the ministry. But she didn't want to go. Like, to her idea, Africa and and roughing it was like having slow Wi-Fi. That's what she considered roughing it to be. And he wants to move her to Africa. But he persuaded her to go on a short-term missions trip. Just just a first-hand experience. Just maybe you'll fall in love with the people. Maybe you'll fall in love with the country or, or, or with the mission that I believe God's calling us to. And then, and then we can decide what's going to happen. So she agreed to go along. And she was bitter the whole time. Just, just complained the entire trip. And so Roland kept reminding her, though, hey, you know what? A couple more days. And then before we go home, we're going to go to Victoria Falls. One of the most amazing tourist places in the entire world. Victoria Falls, the perfect premier tourist place to go in all of Africa. One of the largest waterfalls in the world. This beautiful sight, this beautiful sight and sound to behold. And if you ever have been, some people here may have, may have been to Victoria Falls before, but, but when you get there, there's this statue of this famous 19th century missionary named David Livingston. You've probably heard that name before. David Livingston. And he stands there with his hand looking to the horizon and a Bible in the other hand. And so they get to Victoria Falls after this long period of just bitterness and tension between the two of them. And they stand there at the falls and the sight and the sound. And they're looking at this statue and and he holds her hand. And they're just quiet for a while. And then Roland looks at his wife and he goes, what do you you think David was thinking about? She paused for a minute and she goes, I think he was saying I've had it up to here with Africa. (laughs) That's what he was saying. She was stuck in that bitterness. She was not called to be a missionary to Africa. But that's okay. But what's not okay is that her bitterness blinded her to the beauty of what was happening around her. It blinded her to the beauty of the moment she was in, the awesomeness of God's creation and the possibilities of what he may be presenting to them. She was blinded by her bitterness to the beauty of God's unfolding story, how for generations from from the time of of Livingston until their moment of standing on that ground, God had been reaching for generations the people of Africa for the sake of Christ. Joseph, however, did not miss the awesomeness of the situation that he was in. 
he had perspective to see God in the midst of it all. And, and like the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 73, I, I can imagine Joseph thinking to himself, then I realized that my heart was bitter. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You, you guide me with your counsel. You lead me to a glorious destiny. As he looks to the future. And I believe that's the sentiment of what's on Joseph's heart, evidenced by what he names his sons. You see, when people would give names, especially in this time and place, they always had meaning that would give some perspective to what was happening around that time. For example, the name Manasseh means God made me forget all the troubles of my father's household. Now, it might seem like an odd thing to celebrate that he would forget his father's household, whether, whether good or bad. But, but there's actually a bit of a, a different usage of these words here. You see, the, the words that are used in the Hebrew give this sense of holding a debt. And so Joseph is saying, God has allowed me to be free of that debt that I was holding against them. That bitterness, that, that unforgiveness, that resentment I had towards my brothers, my father's household, God has allowed me to let go of that debt. And it's gone. And I'm free. And we can see this further echoed in the second name, the name Ephraim, as he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Declaring that whether I'm in a time of suffering or if I'm in a season of success, I will honor my God who is in control of them all. And with that perspective in his heart and as he goes about his duties, all of the nations come to Egypt to buy food from Joseph. And we see further beauty of what's happening here. Because if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, where God first established a promise with Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. God said to him, the day will come when all nations of earth will be blessed by you and your family. We hadn't seen an explicit unfolding of that yet until this particular moment. When all of the earth who is in famine can come to Egypt and can come to be filled with what they need through Joseph. It took four generations. But that blessing starts to be fulfilled in this time. You know, built into all people is a natural tendency to chase after what we want. When we chase after what we want, we run the risk of losing what we need. What do we need? We need to remain faithful to the presence of God in our lives, to, to remember that it's always with us, to remember that all good and all perfect gifts ultimately come from him. And that however we might define success, that he is the one whom we should be thanking, whom we should be trusting, and who is worthy of all honor for every season of our lives. And the best way to avoid that pride from, from welling up, the, the best way to avoid allowing the things of this world to lead us to walk away from that faithfulness to God is to understand that the way to the top, the way to success, the way to promotion is to begin by going low. To humbly follow God's will. This is the same attitude that we see exemplified by Jesus Christ in his ministry and his life. Which Paul summarizes for us in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5 where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or out of vain conceit. Rather in humility value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest but to the interest of others. And in your relationships have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What was that mindset of Christ Jesus? Jesus is willing to put the Father's will above his own. 
even to the point where he was willing to die upon a cross so that we might live. And that's where success begins. It begins by acknowledging that we need a Savior, that we're not strong enough on our own, that we, we can't do this on our own, that there are limits as, as intelligent, as wise, as successful, as experienced as we may be, there are limits to how far that will take us. There's a gap between us and God. But God bridged the gap through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, that we could enter into a relationship with him, to know him personally, live with him eternally, and experience the life of abundance he brings now and for all of eternity. It begins by acknowledging our need for a Savior and then acknowledging that Jesus is that Savior and to humbly accept him to come under that sacrifice. And so I pray that we'll keep at the forefront of our lives that if we suddenly ever get everything we always wanted, we would not risk losing the very one thing that we need. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that when opportunities come our way to attain things of this world that perhaps in a moment or for many moments we've sought after, that when our opportunity for position, performance, success by the world's understanding starts to increase in our lives, Lord, that I pray that when a tendency to to feel pride, an unhealthy type of pride in our lives for things that are happening around our own abilities, that, that we wouldn't take credit for that, Lord. That we would not see these as things that point us towards ourselves, but they would be things that would point us back towards you, that we could say, thank you, Jesus, for, for being the example, for being the one who loved me, who gave his life for me. Thank you, Lord, for being the giver of all good and perfect gifts in my life. I pray we find ourselves at a point where we can say thank you. Lord, even for the tough times that I've gone through, because I can see how you were forming and shaping me. And Lord, if you had enough time and effort to think of that, you must have some plan for me. And I thank you that you've thought of me and have a place for me in your kingdom and in your will. I pray for those, Lord, as well, who may be having their eyes upon the past and bitterness and resentment still in their lives and they're missing the beauty of what could be today of what you're doing today I pray Lord that through the power of Christ in their lives that they would find freedom from that that they would release that and let go of that debt and find the joy and peace that comes in Jesus Christ we thank you Lord that success is not defined by us but it's defined by our humbly submitting to your will and allowing you to work in us and through us for your purposes Pray this in Jesus' name.